Thanks, Jan. Um, my name's Jason, if we haven't uh, met before. I'm going to start today by uh, cautioning you that today's sermon um, is probably not one that you can do while multitasking, even for the ladies uh, watching at the moment. Um, so can I ask you to pause what you're doing, um, to take the time to sit down with God's Word in front of you and give this our full uh, attention, and I'm going to pray to that effect right now. Lord, today's passage is full of your character and will demand all of our attention. Please direct my words and our hearts. Amen. Well, good day again. Um, I hope you've really enjoyed our sermon series so far in 1 Peter. I've just found it so, so uh, relatable because it's a timeless message um, that it's global to all believers, encouraging us to stand firm during suffering and keep our hope and our holiness secure in Christ. And today uh, we're going to begin Peter's final chapter in chapter 5. But this passage is actually a call to church leaders, to the elders, and I'm going to use those terms uh, interchangeably. It's to the elders. So in a deliberately cheeky move, Andrew has asked me to deliver the, the sermon because I'm not one, um, which I think is a bit like your supervisor calling you into his office and sitting you down and telling, uh, and telling you, um, oh, how can I make some improvements, critique my performance? And it sounds a bit dangerous, doesn't it? We know I'm joking because it was God that inspired Peter to write these words to elders. So, in fact, this is a message from their boss, isn't it? From our boss, our CEO, as it were. And so our primary audience today uh, is the six men at Narrow Baptist that we know and love as our church elders. These men being responsible uh, for the spiritual growth and purity and direction of our church as a family unit. But not exclusively. Um, and let me explain that. Well, I'll let Alistair Begg explain that. He's a Scottish pastor um, in the US, so you may have heard of him. And he says of elders, and I'll quote him now, It's not God's will that everyone run everything. The church is not a pure democracy. You see, the pattern of all democracies is that its people always drift into claiming their rights but evading their responsibilities. And yet neither is it an autocracy or a dictatorship. Listen to this. God's will is for some to be responsible for the leadership of others and for all to be responsible to the leadership of Jesus Christ, whose rule alone is singular and unqualified. You catch what he said there at the end of the quote. He said, God's will is for some to be responsible to the leadership of others, but for all to be responsible to the leadership of Jesus Christ. And I think uh, that comment that God puts elders over his church body to listen to, I think that actually adds weight to this lesson for the rest of us as well who aren't elders. Not only because uh, we elect our elders in this church and we need to know uh, the qualities required of men in that position, um, but also because of Newton's third law of motion. What? Don't write this down. I'm about to butcher high school science, but I think you'll get my point um, and you'll see why. You see, Newton's third law of motion in science states that 
For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So just like gravity is pushing my 81 kilos down into the floor of this stage, the floor is actually resisting that force with exactly 81 kilos of force as well, which is why I stay right here in the camera screen and I'm, and I'm not sinking down into the floor. And before I lose you, here is the critical similarity that I want to make here. Just like Newton's equal and opposite reactions, everything God says to someone in the scriptures, whether that are elders, prophets, Israelites, or even Satan, everything God says to someone in the scriptures equally says something about God himself. Equally says something about God himself. And if you're a believer, that should have caught your attention too. Because that means everything God says here to elders is essential learning for us also. Because as I said before, he's our boss too, isn't he? And before I let this point rest, I also want to note that what God demands of or commands of his leaders, he wants from all of us, doesn't he? It just needs to be evident in our church leaders first if our church body is to show growth. Those lists of qualifications that we see in Uh, Titus and in Timothy um, of uh, elders should be the goal of all people, shouldn't they? And we know that because they're already characteristics that God displays himself. He had only said in chapter 1 of this very book, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. So while I've probably convinced you now that this passage is relevant to all of us, I admit that at first I actually struggled to see why chapter 5 existed. You see, I'm sure if you recall last week's sermon, but Peter's whole point throughout chapters 1 to 4, the whole book so far, has been encouraging all believers to stand firm during suffering and continue to grow in love toward one another. And he finished chapter 4 last week with this perfect one-verse summary of his whole point there in verse 19, the last verse of chapter 4. He says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And that verse is like Peter's just set off the last firework on the harbour bridge on New Year's Eve and it goes off with such a boom like that, that you know that was the end, that was the finale, that was it. And then he opens his mouth again and he starts with this sort of unrelated side note just specifically to the elders. And it seems a bit, to me, a bit clunky and maybe a little bit out of place. We've got to ask ourselves, why? Uh, In the English Standard Version and some other translations, um, verse 1 starts with, So I exhort the elders. And we know Peter is going to try and link what he says in chapter 5 to where he's just come from in chapter 4. And his point is actually really strong and quite confronting, I found. So let's pick that up. And we're going to go to chapter 4 and we're going to begin it at verse 15. 1 Peter 4:15. If you suffer, it should not be as, as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Our line there in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This statement isn't new. This statement isn't new. Peter's actually borrowed this line from Ezekiel. And I did not expect that either. I'm sure you didn't. So we're going to go back to Ezekiel um, to unpack what he means here. Ezekiel chapter 9. Turn back with me. I'll give you time to find it because you need to see this. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. The parallel that Peter is going to draw here is going to establish the weight and the importance of this message he's about to give to the elders and, in fact, to all of us. Ezekiel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. This is a vision the Lord gives to the prophet Ezekiel. It says, Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. And they came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. And then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. And as I listened, he said to the elders, follow him, sorry, to the others, follow him throughout the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who are in front of the temple. You see, in this really confronting picture, God shows Ezekiel six angels of judgment and a scribe. And Ezekiel watches as God commands this scribe to go throughout all the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all of those who hate and grieve the sin and the idolatry that is happening in Jerusalem. You'd be right in thinking this sounds a lot like the Passover in the Exodus from Egypt, because in fact it's a repeat picture, isn't it? Where God commanded his faithful ones, his holy people, to put a mark to be passed over by the angel of judgment. And then those angels of judgment there in verse 5 of this passage are commanded to kill without mercy those not marked with holiness. But the key for us uh, is what he says there in verse 6. Halfway through it, he says, Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Whoa. Did you catch what he says there? Because God's expectation is that his leaders are the first to obey. They are to initiate and to uphold God's highest standard because they represent him not just by what they teach, but by how they live. 
And so here in Ezekiel, they are the first to be judged for their sin and their idolatry. In Peter's letter, he's drawing on this. He uses this line to suggest that this time of refining judgment and persecution that all of his audience are going through must have its first and its strongest effect on its elders, on the church leaders. And no doubt this is a heavy burden of responsibility, isn't it? And so today's passage, chapter 5, is, or the start of it, uh, is Peter's extra coaching and encouragement and exhortation to these church leaders because of how important it is that they are the first to remain faithful during this time of suffering that they're experiencing. Because they, in turn, are going to lead the rest of God's people to the same obedience, aren't they? To more growth, to more outpouring of love, increased humility, strengthened faith, and ultimately, eternal God's eternal reward. Uh, so with the heavy weight, I think, of that lead-in to 1 Peter 5. Let's turn back there and uh, dive right into it. 1 Peter 5. Verse 1, he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. I love Peter's punchy opening here. He just sort of states his credentials and his resume and then just lays out his lesson. And his lesson is really this. Be shepherds of God's flock, serving as overseers. Now, we're going to come back to Peter's credentials there, his little resume in verse 1, and why our elders should acknowledge his um, ability to teach this lesson. But I don't want to delay his main point uh, any longer. So here is his lesson, be shepherds of God's flock, serving as overseers. And you notice he picks up this metaphor of being a shepherd, and he's going to drive his argument with it. But why shepherd? I mean, what, what does he mean he wants them to do? What does this add? I mean, the hills of Israel are a very different environment to the inside of a church, aren't they? Well, just like Peter's just called back to Ezekiel's prophecy to add weight to the lesson that he's about to give, here he uses shepherd imagery to, to conjure up all of those rich passages that we have in the Old Testament and even in Jesus' teaching um, that these elders would have been familiar with. I mean, they would recall King David as a teenager leading his father's sheep night and day through the hills, defending them from lions and from bears, and then later penning those beautiful and personal words Keith opened for us with in Psalm 23 about the Lord being his own shepherd. And remember, I was going to turn there, but we, we, we won't now. Um, remember that those words David penned in Psalm 23 are coming from a true shepherd that knew what it was to do that role because it was his occupation. And then he reflects on how the Lord is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those qualities. And some of the things that he wrote there in Psalm 23 was that the Lord provides, the Lord leads, he nourishes, restores, guides, protects, comforts, prepares, 
anoints, shows goodness and love and a secure hope. All of these things that the Lord does as the ultimate shepherd for us. I think we can see that this isn't just a job and it's not just a heart of goodwill. It must be both. It must be both. Um, We're going to go back to Ezekiel. You can come to this one with me again. You know where it is now. So Ezekiel again, chapter 34. We're going to keep building this picture of what shepherding God's flock looks like and doesn't look like. Ezekiel 34, again in verse 1. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds. Clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. And they were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. We see here by contrast, don't we, how uh, bad shepherds can be identified. Did you see God's alarming question there? Should not shepherds take care of the flock? I mean, isn't that the whole point? And then he goes on and condemns these bad shepherds of Israel because of how selfish they had made a selfless role. And that cold and hollow tone that we saw there in verse 5. So they were scattered, the sheep, because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. See, God loves his people. God loves and has compassion on his flock. And these shepherds of Israel were only serving themselves, but with impure motives. Come down there in verse, down to verse 11. We'll pick it up again. Verse 11, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture. and The mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. And there they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock 
with justice. That is the heart of a great shepherd. And along with the Lord's shepherding that we saw in Psalm 23 at the beginning, it's a role that is motivated by love and humility and the glory of God himself, isn't it? Let's go back to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 2. I should probably give you a minute. It says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. If you're in a position of leadership uh, in the church, let that sink in for a minute. It is his flock in your care. And he says you do this by serving as overseers in a certain way. You see, this authority from God is only granted to church leaders provided they do so with the right heart posture. The right heart posture. And he describes three features of their leadership which must be present. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, um, but here they are. Uh, Halfway through verse 2 he says, Serve as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. That's the first one. Number two, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. And the third one, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, I think it's obvious here that Peter's most concerned about the heart in which these shepherds do their role, the manner in which they do this. It's the motive and the integrity that becomes the focus, because that's what God sees. And I think this is why he only really addresses three aspects of their character here, whereas elsewhere in the scriptures we see a whole range of uh, qualities demanded of those in authority in the church. So he's not meaning for this to be a full list, but it's a carefully selected list. You see, I think Peter has picked these three to combat three of uh, the most dangerous pitfalls that might be tempting to church leaders. Those being duty, greed, and the misuse of power. We're going to briefly address each one of these. So the first one, duty, uh, halfway through verse 2 there. He says, serve as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not because you must. I think for many leaders, serving those under them can feel like an obligation, can't it? A necessity, uh, but a tiresome one. The temptation is that exercising the authority of this role uh, can feel like a duty that just comes with the status. And Peter says, no. No, that is the position. Serving those under you is the whole point. And if it's God's flock, he wants them loved like he loves them. C.S. Lewis, you would have heard of him, he once said that uh, duty is only a substitute for love like a crutch is a substitute for a leg. So just like a crutch might temporarily replace my dodgy knee while it heals, shepherding God's people because it's your job rather than your desire, is at best a temporary measure. And as a habit, 
it's going to end in bitterness and division. Because it's not really a job, it's a ministry. So the command is to serve as overseers because you were willing as God wants you to be. (laughs) And this is hard, isn't it? Because willingly serving and loving people who are difficult and selfish is so, so hard. But this is the high standard that God demands of his shepherds. This is the heart of godly leaders. The second pitfall that we see there tempting God's leaders here is greed. At the end of verse 2, he says, Serve as overseers, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Now, it would seem, I think, at first glance that there are other corners of God's church to whom this um, applies maybe even more strongly. And I'm not going to identify those. I think you can probably uh, get where I'm going with that. Unfortunately, it is, it's a common hang-up of those outside the church looking in that Christian leaders are so often consumed by wealth, whether it's amassing it for themselves or promising it to others. As Paul says, they appear greedy for gain, don't they? And yet before we relax here, I think we need to consider the wording that we get in many of the other translations. I noticed Jan's was as well that it doesn't say greedy for money, but not for shameful or dishonest gain. And I think there's nowhere to hide for all of us there. Because while we might not be flying our Learjets between um, Sunday services, and certainly not in this congregation we don't, anyone in a position of authority might be tempted to do so, to hoard personal praise be welcomed into homes of status or invited to lavish restaurant outings or corporate box events or even just to seek special recognition from those who are considered popular and as a motivator to shepherd God's people. These things are shameful gains. Peter is again delivering God's high, high standard that our leaders must not be motivated by incentives like wealth or status or popularity, but purely by an eagerness to serve because it's his flock. His flock. The third pitfall that might tempt leaders here that Peter addresses is there in verse 3. Serve as overseers, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I I don't think I can more appropriately illustrate this point than when the apostle who wrote this actually learnt this lesson himself. So we're going to turn back there to quite a familiar passage in the Gospel of John. Come with me to John chapter 13. How blessed are we to have uh, this moment recorded in the Scripture for us and For sure, this is what Peter is thinking of as he writes this. John chapter 13. This is the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. You'd be familiar with it, so we're going to pick it up down in verse 5. John 13, 5. After that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
And he came to Simon Peter, our author today, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing now, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, Come down to verse 12. And when he had finished washing their feet, Jesus put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus says, do you understand what I have done for you? If I, being your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet and I have set an example for you, then you should do it for those, for one another's feet as well. That lesson itself is obvious, but what I only actually realized as I looked at this passage in light of today is that Jesus isn't teaching this on the mountain to all believers. Jesus isn't speaking to the average churchgoer. He says this to the very first elders of his new covenant church. Peter says, don't lord your authority over those under you, but be an example to the flock. And he says this, no doubt, as he recalls the Son of God washing the street grime off of his own feet. When Jesus says that no servant is greater than his master, He's speaking to those who would be the pillars of his new church in just a few short weeks. Let's be clear, the misuse or the abuse of power or authority by leaders in the church is totally unsupported by Christ's example and any other part of Scripture. They must set an example of humility and of servanthood to the flock. God. And then you might be thinking this, but it's as if Peter can hear the elders' minds thinking, is it even worth it? What's being asked of us is so hard, so tiresome, so unrewarding. Back in 1 Peter 5, he says in verse 4, But when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I had planned to do a, a micro-study here of the eternal reward, the, the imperishable crown that we sort of keep seeing reappear uh, all throughout the book of 1 Peter, um, which is excellent. But um, it's not Peter's primary point here, so we're going to pass over it. Um, but he does suggest that for those that truly qualify for this role, for those shepherds um, with a, the right heart to shepherd God's flock, not out of duty, or greed, or the misuse of power, that this reward will be enough to motivate them. That when the shepherd of the shepherds returns, he will give a special crown of glory to those who faithfully led his sheep to a place of peace and growth, and in a manner which glorified him. 
And then in verse 5 of our passage, Peter zooms right out and readdresses the crowd, as it were, the rest, the rest of us, not just the elders. So let's read verse 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The thing is, this isn't really a new point at all, is it? Because Peter's whole lesson to the elders, to church leaders, has been summed up as one of humility as well, hasn't it? He's, he's taught that there's no external glory in that role because it's a role of submission itself. It's a role of servanthood, of protecting God's sheep from lions, of washing their grimy feet, and of doing so out of love, not out of duty, with eagerness and not by greed, and by their own selfless example not a misuse of that title. And yet even perfectly executed um, by God's leaders, they might still serve a divisive congregation that fails to grow. And how could that happen? Well, if God's people aren't submitting to their leaders, then God's people aren't submitting to him. Peter says there to young men specifically, in the same way, they should be submissive to those who are older. Now, by those who are older, we know he's still referring to church leaders because all throughout the scriptures, uh, physical age is equated or associated with wisdom and experience. And I guess that's why elders uh, are called elders. It's not age limited, but it makes the point. They are old in spiritual maturity, if nothing else. And I think he says this command firstly to young men because they, we, are most prone uh, to be proud and maybe have the potential to uh, cause so much division in the church body. But also because young men, rightly obedient, will be the future eldership themselves, won't they? And then Peter opens up this same command, to everybody else and between everybody else there, further down, verse 5. He says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, and he quotes Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Leadership aside, God demands exactly the same thing from everyone else. And this is how God's flock is nourished. The sheep submit to their shepherds and the shepherds submit to the chief shepherd. And if this all seems uh, a little hard, remember how we became sheep in the first place. Peter gave it to us in chapter 2, two pages back for me. Chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. 
Now, if you're a believer in Christ and you've heard this call to humility, uh, both specifically to elders and even to the rest of us today, and if you've agreed with that and you believe that, can I ask you to raise your hand now? I know we're online and you're not really going to... uh, I'm not going to see you, but if you agreed with this as a show of solidarity, would you raise your hand um, as an understanding of what God's Word has told us today? Excellent. We're going to come back to that in a second. I'm going to tell you a a quick story. Most of you would know... uh, I'm an Ambo, and uh, earlier this year, I was the ambulance responded um, to a man that had woken up uh, in the morning as normal and got up to make his wife um, and himself a coffee, and he felt a bit dizzy and faint. Um, So they called triple zero. And when my partner and I got there, um, he was on the lounge, and I asked him a bunch of questions, as we usually do, and and he answered them. And and then as I started uh, checking him out, he just closed his eyes and died in front of me and um, he went into cardiac arrest. So we immediately commenced CPR and gave our absolute best uh, resuscitation efforts and for a long time. And what was most bizarre and the actual point, and I should say to no avail unfortunately, but what was most bizarre and the point of my illustration that I want us to see here is that all through our efforts to resuscitate him, his heart was showing a perfect-looking rhythm on the defibrillator. You would have seen what a heart rhythm looks like. It's sort of incorrectly portrayed on our Pulse Youth Group um, picture. But all through our efforts to resuscitate him, his heart was showing a perfect-looking rhythm, but it never pumped once. It never pumped once. We kept looking at that monitor and then feeling for the pulse that should have been there, and it wasn't there. We call this pulseless electrical activity, PEA, and it it does happen uh, from time to time. It was a perfectly formed electrical rhythm that was no good to him because it never caused action. Now, if you raised your hand before when I asked, you're also showing a perfectly good electrical rhythm as a response to God's message today. Um, And that is great news. It really is. But let me draw the parallel that you probably know I'm heading towards and say that this response will be no good to you or to me or your church family or God's glory if it never causes a pump. Your heart's got a pump for life to return, and that means spiritually as well. This isn't meant to be somber and judgmental. I I think a flatline rhythm would be somber and judgmental. This is good news, but we need to turn it into humility that can be seen. Humility that becomes your reputation. Humility that encourages and receives God-centered discipline, if that's what's required of you. Receive that criticism. Humility that holds its tongue and it has nothing loving to say. And for God's leaders, for our elders, this humility must overflow first in their leadership. It must be a leadership that isn't motivated by duty, but by a growing love for God's flock. A leadership that's not motivated by greed, but by a genuine eagerness to serve. 
a position of authority that isn't flaunted for its power, but demonstrates a servant's heart before it teaches it to others. Servanthood that proves that our leaders themselves are submitting to the chief shepherd and overseer of their souls. And that is a pumping heart of godly leadership. I said right at the beginning when we passed over uh, Peter's credentials there in verse 1 that we'd come back to it and we're actually going to finish with it. So turn with me please uh, back to the Gospel of John, John 21, and we're going to finish here. Last chapter of John. We're at the end of John's Gospel and, and here the Apostle Peter, our author of today's passage, he's still reeling from his triple betrayal of Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest and then shortly after watching his Lord hang on the cross and die and be buried. And now Jesus has disappeared from the grave and Peter doesn't really seem to know what to do with himself. So he gets in his fishing boat and goes fishing, I guess thinking that that's all he's really equipped to do. But then the risen Lord appears to him on the beach at breakfast and Peter comes off the fishing boat and he's reunited with him and as they come back together after a long night and a time of fear and doubting Jesus turns to the author of our passage today and he teaches him this exact same message in the most gentle and powerful way we're going to pick it up in John 21 verse 15 and hear this this is the chief shepherd teaching his very first elder about the heart of godly leadership. John 21:15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. 